scripture for today comes from Hosea 3, 1 through 5, and it's on page um, 805. The Lord says to me, Go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to the gods and love the sacred raven cakes. So I bought up a 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a leptic of barley. And I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will live with you. For the, for the Israelites will live many days without a king or prince, without sacrificing sacred stones, without ephod or idols. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessing in the last days. Hosea is a prophet, and as with all prophets, their, their, their whole reason for existence, their whole ministry, their whole message is pointing to something much greater. It's pointing to ultimate redemption, to, to one who will come to bring about redemption, to, to will, one who will essentially put the world to rights. And out of all of the prophets that speak all throughout the scriptures, all throughout the Old Testament, this, this one prophet, Hosea, who we're going to be looking at today, is called to probably what is the most radical and extreme expression of, of this, of, of conveying a message to a people about the love of God, and not simply the love of God, but the coming redemption of God, the coming restoration of God. Last week we talked about restoration and retribution and discovered that God is a God of restoration. And so here Hosea is pushing forward, and he's looking forward to this God of restoration. And so this chapter that we're going to dive into today is, is a heart-wrenching story. One theologian calls it calls Hosea chapter three, which was just read, the greatest chapter in the Bible. And and I believe that as we dive into it today, and as we as we discuss it, as we pick it apart, I believe that we're going to. You might not call it the greatest chapter in the Bible, but I think you'll see why some people do. And. Uh, and like I say, it's, it's, it's challenging, it's, it's heart-wrenching, it's emotional, and to be honest, as I speak today, as I give this sermon, I have to somehow di- emotionally disconnect from it so I don't begin to weep in front of you. <laughs> because you can get so wrapped up into, the, into what's going on here. If you allow, if you really grasp what's going on. Why don't we do this, to begin. Can we turn again? Last week we turned and made little groups of twos and threes. Can we just turn to somebody that's next to you? And I want you to do this. This will just kind of set us on the right path. I want us to begin by uh, discussing, coming up with various metaphors that God uses in relation to to how how God relates to humanity. What are some metaphors that God uses uh, which show us how he relates to humanity? And I'll give you one. This is a, I'll be an easy teacher here. I'll give you one to get started. God is the good shepherd and we are the sheep. That's a metaphor, all right? So turn and see if you can come up with two or three more metaphors. All right. Let's see what we got. Metaphors today. Okay, excellent one, excellent one. The potter and the clay, beautiful. Sean? Bride and groom. I'm just going to write down the metaphors for God himself, but I want to hear about What else? The loyal son. Shepherd. Shepherd. Loyal son. Loyal subjects. King and king. So the, okay, so God is the king. We are subjects. 
Shepherd. Both the master of the house. Master of the house, yep. And uh, servants or guests within the house. Vine and branches. That's a good. That's a good. Counselor. He is our psychologist, and we are the messed up patient, right? Leaves. Leaves. I like it. I'm gonna figure out how that one works. I like it. He's the leaf. Yeah, leaves, right. Right. And it's, the leaves kind of fall all over the place and cover us with love. Right? Excellent. Anyone else? From the mouths of babies. From the mouths of babies. Toshio? Dirt. Dirt. Okay, now, now he's pushing. Sower in the seeds. Ah, sower in the seeds. Dirt, dirt reminded you of one. Sower. Tim. Father. Excellent. How can we forget Father? Our Father. Our. Our Father. Excellent. One more. One more kids. from Toshio. Kids. We are his kids. Exactly. That'd be the, the other end of that. Uh, very good. What What we see here in, in Hosea, chapter 3, is... Uh, is God revealing himself to his people in a certain way. And I just want to like, you know, elephant in the room. Um, I know you're all wondering why, why are you dressed up? What's the point? <laughs> I'm speaking at another church at three o'clock today. So. Is that, is, I never dress up for you guys. <laughs> But I was asked to dress up for them. But I feel good. I think I might do this each Sunday now. <laughs> All right. This metaphor that, that God uses, and I, I don't even know if metaphor is the right word. Um, well, we won't dive in too deep yet. Three things that we learned from this passage that we're going to dive into today. Just right off, right off the bat, three things that we learned. Number one, our relationship with God is like a marriage. I think Sean said, Sean gets the uh, point. Our relationship for God, with God is like a marriage. It's spousal. Number two, our relationship with God is like a very, very bad marriage. And number three, We learn what God did to fix it. All right? So, are you guys ready to dive in? Ready to do this? Let's pray. God, we do come to you and we, we ask that you move in our hearts today. These words that, that are coming out of my mouth, I pray that uh, you will actually move in people's hearts and so they become powerful. And uh, we recognize that in and of ourselves we have no power. Uh, but, but it is your spirit working in us that does something that we cannot do. And so I ask that you uh, take these words of Scripture, make them alive within us. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, let's look at chapter 1, verse 2 of Hosea. When the Lord began to speak, and you know, remember Hosea is a prophet, so it's not shocking, what, uh, it's not shocking that God is speaking. That's n- the norm. God speaks to prophets, and then they convey the message to the people. That's what they do. So uh, the Lord begins to speak through Hosea at the beginning of his prophetic ministry. He's just now starting out as a prophet. And this is what God does. This is what the Lord says. Go and take yourself an adulterous wife. Now, uh, first of all, number one, our relationship with God is like a marriage. There are some key things about a marriage that really adequately communicate God's love for us and what should be our love for God. Like no other metaphor. Like no other metaphor. Uh, A couple things. Number one, priority. In a marriage, your spouse is your priority. There should be nothing else 
that takes priority over your spouse? Nothing. Uh, I think for those of us who are married in the room can probably agree that that is a constant battle, right? It's a constant challenge to make sure that your spouse is taking priority in your life. Um, it, it, myself, it's, it's a constant journey, it's a constant battle to make sure, look inward, make sure nothing else is taking priority over Jess. Uh, this last summer, as some of you know, I, about halfway through the summer, I looked at, you, looked at you guys and I said, listen, I can't speak for the rest of the summer because I feel like Jess hasn't been a priority in my life. And I feel like I'm going to be speaking out of hypocrisy. I have to look inward. And, you know, stress was taking priority over Jess. Um, other people, ministry, was taking priority over Jess. And so I had to take a, 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 and some of you guys at the Garden have been extremely influential in my own life as I've been working through this and developing some accountability in this. But just making sure that Jess truly is the number one priority in my life. And I, was, and I hope this doesn't come across as mean, but even Jess has got to be more important to me than you guys are, than any of you. And she's got to be my number one, right? <laughs> Let's give Jess a hand. <laughs> Wait a second. Jess, come on up. Come on. Come on. Come on. Yeah, come on. <laughs> For real? <laughs> I wasn't planning on doing this, and I didn't tell Jess I'm going to do this, but I think I should kiss my wife in front of her. Okay? <laughs> I was wanting a little bit more than that. But seriously, Jet, in a marriage like your spouse has to be number one. They have to be priority. They have to come before every, everyone else and everything else. And, and if the, the institution of marriage exists, and I believe it does, to point us to a greater institution, to point us to a greater relationship, then all the more, then, as we recognize that God is our Father, all the more should God be our priority, and that we are his priority as well. It speaks wonders. So priority. Uh, number two, transparency. Um, I've been a pastor for about seven years now. I've been the lead pastor for about two years since we started working on the garden. And I've been able to develop a uh, public persona of being patient, um, being caring, you know, and Generally, I, I, I try to be, and I, I am. Um, but the reality is, is um, if, if if one of you guys came up to me after a gathering or something and said, "Joel, you are such a patient and caring person," that'd be nice. And I'd say, you know, I'm glad that you believe that. <laughs> glad that you see that. I'm glad that I present present myself that way. Now, if my wife were to come up to me and she were to say, "Joel," You are the most patient and caring person. Now, if she were to come up, you know, this is hypothetically speaking, that, that would mean that I'm a patient and caring person, right? Because you can't fake it in front of your spouse. There's utter transparency, utter transparency in front of your spouse. You can't fake it. They know everything about you. And so we are completely transparent with God. He knows everything about us, our spouse. And then number three, um, I don't know what word exactly to use to convey this, but I, I thought of the word powerful. And what I mean by that is, and I'll give you an example. If, if you are married, if you, if you are married or when, when, when you get married, whatever, uh, if your spouse were to look you in the eye, and tell you that you're ugly. When, the, when everyone else around you, all of your friends, people that you work with, everybody else says that you are absolutely adorable. You are beautiful. If your spouse were to look at you and tell you that you're ugly, how are you going to feel? doesn't matter what anybody else says. doesn't matter. You are ugly. I'm, I'm not saying you are. <laughs> That's how you would feel. There's this unbelievable amount of power that a spouse wields over another spouse. Uh, very influential in the way that we think of ourselves, the way that we feel. 
I mean, we, we can reverse this and flip it around. If everybody around you says you are ugly and your spouse looks at you in the eyes and says you are absolutely beautiful, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. You don't care anymore. It really doesn't matter because your spouse thinks that you're beautiful. You could, you could have felt ugly your entire life. <laughs> and all of a sudden you meet this person who says you are the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And you are gorgeous. And so this image then of a marriage, that God uses this marriage image for humanity, the relationship between humans and him. That of a spouse, the spousal kind of love, it says a lot. Says a lot, you know. Doesn't matter what anybody else says of us. What does God think of us? It's all that matters to us. What does God think of us? Is God our priority? You know, all of these things. So here, Jose, he's at the beginning of his prophetic ministry, and he's called to marry a wife, right? But not just any wife. He's called to marry a an adulterous wife. He's called to marry somebody who he knows. He's not going to be faithful to him. He knows that she is going to, to run, run, run away. She's, she's going to cheat on him. But God calls Hosea to marry this, this woman, and so, uh, so he does. So our relationship with God is like a marriage, but it's like a very, very bad marriage, right? I mean, as, as the story unfolds here of Hosea, she, has, she gives him three children. Uh, the third child he names Loami. You know what that means? It means not mine. She's already looking elsewhere. She's already in someone else's bed and having children with other people. And then chapter two sort of develops and it gets worse. And she's, it seems as if she's a streetwalker, walking the streets, looking for love elsewhere. And he can't, can't stop her. She's just constantly looking for different lovers, different lovers. And he even builds up walls to try to keep fence her in, and he, he, he can't, can't keep her, can't contain her. She keeps looking for love elsewhere. Uh, the Even the clothes that she wears, the water, the food that she has, she believes is coming from elsewhere. And, and he's like, you know, even though I'm the one that's supplying it for you, you think you're getting it elsewhere. So she's going to all these other lovers because essentially she thinks that they are better to her than he is. They love me more. You don't really love me. You know, it's this gradual moving away, moving away. You know, I don't even know if you love me anymore. Uh, but these people do. This is what's happening. And deeper and deeper, essentially she's becoming a, a, a sex addict. To the point where chapter 3 hits... And it's, it's gone farther, it's, gone, it's, it's even worse, it's, it's very, very bad. In chapter 3, uh, we see that she is now for sale. And uh, turn, turn over to chapter 3 right there. There's, there's two ways that you could be for sale. One is you've fallen into debt, uh, or two, you've become a prostitute. Either way, it we don't know how she, why she's for sale. It doesn't, doesn't tell us. But either way, it's bad. And so this wife that he's decided to love, this wife that he's taken, uh, he's married, she's not only uh, had children with other people, she's not only run out on him, uh, now she's, she's gone. She's left, left home. She's not there anymore. And she is down at the marketplace for sale. And God says to Hosea, verse 1 of chapter 3, The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. And those aren't rice cakes with raisins on them. In case that's what you were thinking there. It's food that was offered to idols. They're turning to other gods, the Israelites. And so it's a picture of God's enduring love for the Israelites. He looks at Hosea and he says, even though she's now for sale, it's worse than you could ever imagine. I want you to go 
I want you to show your love to your wife again. And this is, I mean, in all cultural norms uh, of today, especially at that time, it would be ridiculous. I mean, in this culture, if, if your uh, wife was unfaithful one time, she was, you know, stoner. Get rid of her. Uh, much less completely leaving you, completely abandoning you, completely turning away um, to, the, to where she's now, she's now a slave. She's being sold as a slave. And I can't imagine what Hosea's friends would have said to him. You know, are you serious? <laughs> I mean, you should turn your back on this woman. Are you serious? You're going to go after her into the marketplace where she's being sold as a slave and try to show your love to her again. Are you serious? So, so he does. Um, the question that I want to ask here is this. Why would God ask Hosea to do such a thing? Why would God ask Hosea to marry an adulterous woman to have his heart ripped out of his chest over and over and over. And to the, to the point where she's now being sold as a slave and, and to still go love her. Don't stop. Don't stop loving her. Not until she's dead. Don't stop loving her. Because that's our relationship with God. Yeah. I, I think, number one, it's, it's, it's the redemptive picture of God's love for us. And also, I think there's something else going on here, too, that's easy to miss. This is at the beginning of Hosea's ministry, all right? Hosea has uh, no clue how God really feels about his people. He really doesn't know. I mean, he's, he's, he's green. He doesn't know. He, he, he's, he's new to the ministry. God's told him, uh, I mean, the, the message that God has for Hosea is to go to the people and tell them, that they are running from me, that they're running away from me, that they're cheating on me. But Hosea really doesn't know how God feels. And so what God is doing is he's teaching Hosea through a very living way. He's teaching Hosea how he feels. His own, what it's like to have his own heart broken. And so now, I mean, Hosea is living it. And so now as he turns and as he faces the people to speak to them about how they're running away from God, is he going to talk um, theoretically or is he going to talk passionately and out of experience? He's going to be very passionate, isn't he? Do you know how much God loves you and you're continuing to turn your back on him? You're continuing to run from him. And he longs for you. So Hosea is going through this process of learning the heart of God, essentially. And God's gifted him with this amazing heart of forgiveness to be able to continue to love his wife time after time after time. And it blows my mind when I think of it. It really does. And when I think, too, you know, we are people who have feelings, right? We, are, we have emotions. And we are created in the image of God. Which means what? It means God has feelings and emotions. God is not some abstract being who's out there sort of like orchestrating things and he's completely um, emotionless. Emotionless. God's heart breaks. I mean, every time... What, what is his heart breaking about here in this in this? case, it's, it's people turning to other gods. It's the Israelites turning to other gods. And taking this picture of marriage, where our spouse is to be our priority, what that means is any time that we, we make anything else a priority other than God, it, it's as if we're cheating on him. It's as if we're running away. And it's not, you know, <clears throat> a, a potter, if his clay doesn't work, right, he throws it away, right? Um, a king, if his subjects don't obey, he gets angry. The vine, well, the vine doesn't think, leaves 
Anybody? <laughs> the father, if his child disobeys, rebels, he gets angry, gets upset, disappointed. The sower, if his seeds don't take, uh, frustrated. The counselor, if the counselee is not cooperating and not listening, probably frustrated as well. The master, whose servants don't act right, angry. The shepherd, who loses a sheep, worried, stressed out maybe. But a groom, a bridegroom, a husband, a spouse, whose spouse runs away, completely turns their back. It's beyond all of the other metaphors. And it's because this is the actual heart of God right here. And so Hosea is experiencing the, the broken heart of God. Whenever, whenever we disobey, whenever we run, whenever we put any, anything, any other priority, anything at all, greater than God, this is literally the way that God feels. It's, it's not angry. It's beyond anger. It's, it's brokenness. It's, it's love. Jose is looking at his wife and he's, he's, he's weeping for her, I'm sure. He's, I'm sure his love is greater than it ever was. He sees, sees her hurting. And he can't do anything about it. You know, it's, it's beyond our comprehension. The vast love of God that he has for us. So, what did God, what does God do to fix it? So we're a marriage. We're a very, very bad marriage. Where we are the spouse that's running around. Cheating on God. What happens to fix it? Um, so this is what happens. So he, he tells Hosea, go show your love to your wife again, though she's loved by another. So, in verse 2, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Now get this picture of what's going on here. Hosea, who by all cultural normatives, should turn his back and say, forget you, if not kill her. He goes into the marketplace where she is on sale. You know, there she is being auctioned off. Four shekels. Four shekels. Six shekels. Who will give me six shekels? Eight shekels. Who will give me eight shekels for? And then she hears a familiar voice. Ten shekels. I know that voice. 11 shekels. 12 shekels. She turns and she sees him standing there. 14 shekels. She's thinking to herself, what in the world are you doing here? Buying me. I mean, I have run from you. I've, I've got nothing to give you. I, I'm, I'm a terrible person. I'm a sex addict. I, I can't control myself. I'm, I'm loving all of these other people. And now it's gotten so bad, now I'm being sold into slavery. And my life is over. I've got nothing left. And here he is, over there, in the, in the middle of the crowd, 15 shekels, and a homer, and a lethic of barley, which, a lethic of, that, that's about 30 shekels right there, which was the price, an average price for a slave. So he's basically like saying, I will give you a lot of money. I will give you everything I have. And he, and he won her. He bought her. And I'm sure in her mind she's thinking, okay, here, here he is buying me. So now he can own me and do whatever he wants with me, right? Now I'm really going to pay for all the wrong that I've done. I've got it coming to me. And this is what he says to her. It's verse 3. And the uh, Hebrew scholars, which I'm 
unfortunately not one of those, tell me that this is a very hard verse to translate. And I'll read it how, how it's translated in the NIV, and then I'll tell you how I've heard people say it should be translated. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will live with you. And so in a little cleaner, clearer nutshell, essentially what that what that's saying is, dwell with me. You know, I, so he's just bought her. And when he looks at her, he's not angry. He's not coming down. He's not taking her home to, uh, to kill her and bury her in the basement. He looks at her and he says, dwell with me. And then the second thing he tells her to do, he says, stop having sex with anyone, including him. You're not going to have relations with any man. And then the third thing, he says, and then, and then I will be yours. Well, with me. And, and imagine what's going through her mind at this moment. You should have nothing to do with me. You should want nothing with me. And you're actually, not only are you able to look at me, but you're asking me to dwell with you again, to live with you in your home again. You're inviting me back in the door. And then, uh, it's, there, there are some, there are some, patterns that she has developed in her life, which are very destructive. There are some addictions which she has developed in her life, which have pulled her down and have essentially almost nearly destroyed her. And so what he says is, you're not going to have any of that. We're going to heal you. You're going to fast. We're going to move beyond this. We're going we're to get rid of the addictions that are driving you down. I'm, I'm willing to sit with you. I'm willing to walk with you through this. And then he says, he doesn't say, and then I will be your husband. As a, you know, then I'm going to lord over you. I'm going to rule over you. I'm going to be your boss. It's not that. It's not, and then I will be yours. Or, I will be yours. I mean, do you, do you, do you see that? It's not, when we even think of all of these other metaphors, father and son, sower and the seed, um, the vine and the branches, king and his his people, but but a spouse, the equality of two people coming together. He's saying, I, I want you to dwell with me. You're going to be healed. And I will be yours. Not you will be mine. I will be yours. We will own each other. Now, um, The question might then be, okay, so here's the relationship with humanity and God. Is that of a marriage, a very bad marriage? But at what point did God ever go into the marketplace and buy his spouse back? At what point? Look at, look at verses 4 and 5. Chapter 3. For the Israelites will live many days without a king or a prince without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or idol. There's going to be a time, he's saying, of silence when the prophets don't speak. And afterward, he says, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord, their God, and David, their king. Now, David is dead already by the time this is written. So naturally, they're not referring to David himself, but someone Who's coming in the lineage of David? You see, this is this is amazing to me, guys. The gospel of Jesus Christ is being preached in Hosea chapter three. 
This is looking directly forward to this one who's going to come after a time of silence when the prophet stopped speaking. And, and the people are going to turn back to someone who's coming in the lineage of David. This, this point in which God enters into the marketplace to come after the one that he loves. In Luke, or Matthew chapter 9, I'll read it to you really quick. Matthew chapter 9, uh, it says this, Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, and this is what Jesus says, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with him? What is Jesus doing here? What is he calling himself? The groom. He's calling himself the groom. My marker go. Now, the, the ancient Jews knew very well of the groom, the bridegroom, as this image for God, for the Lord, Yahweh. And here Jesus is actually, in Matthew chapter 9, he's actually taking this mantle of the bridegroom, which has been an image all throughout their, their, their literature. He's taking this image of the bridegroom and he's placing it on himself. Jesus is this moment, it's, it's this place where God goes into the marketplace. The groom comes into the marketplace. And there we are, you know, we've, we've slowly walked away. And he comes into the marketplace and, uh, and he buys us. It's a substitutional move on his part. Buys us from our slavery to sin. Our slavery of running away from him. And, and, and rescues us and heals us. Any, any time. We are, humans are a problematic people, aren't we? What kind of problematic? Does anybody disagree? People are problem, anybody who's... For anybody to love someone with problems. Now there are a couple people out there with no problems, right? I think the last census said there was three in the world. Um, so if you run into any of those folks, like become their best friend right away. Marry them if you're single. If you're married, just stay married. <laughs> but to love anybody, the rest of us, to love anybody with problems, it requires a substitutional price. I'll give you an example. Your friend calls. It's Monday night. You're just wanting to relax. And she's, she's, it, she's, she's at it again. She's, the same problems in her life. Crop back up. She wants you to come over and talk. And you know that if you go over to her house and sit down with her on her couch, that she's going to be crying, weeping, and telling you of all the issues in her life. And you're going to sit there, you're going to take it in, and then you're going to walk away and you're going to feel kind of sad, down. And she's going to feel a little better. What just happened? It's a substitutional price. There was just this interaction, this reversal that just took place, in which you gifted this friend... And we all know this, right? Is anybody, is anybody clueless as to what I'm talking about here? The funny thing is we all know it, and we all are also that person to somebody, right? There's this reversal which takes place in which we just gifted that person some of our wholeness, and we took some of their pain, some of their problems. And we walk away feeling down. This is why often we have trouble sticking with certain people long-term, as friends. Sometimes, you know, many people can't get beyond any, any shallow friendship. And it's because there's this reality which takes place in which we begin to realize that that person has problems. And if we're going to continue to be friends with this person, there's going to be a substitutional requirement on our part. 
This is why people leave churches. Because they begin to realize that the church is not perfect. The pastor is not perfect. And in order to stay there, in order to continue in those relationships, there's going to be a substitutional gift on our part. And what greater place do we see this reversal take place? That in this moment, in Jesus Christ, that God comes into the marketplace, and there we are, and he buys us. The greatest substitutional sacrifice of all is his very life given to us. So, what, what can we learn from this? A couple quick things here. Uh, if you are facing a struggle in your life, there are some things going on that make your life very, very challenging at this moment. And for whatever reason, God is not taking these struggles away from you. And you're wondering if maybe that'll just be the case for the rest of your life. Or maybe you're going through a dry season. You're in pain. It very well could be that God is preparing you as a prophet. What I mean by that is God is preparing you. He's doing something in you. He's refining you in some way. He's teaching you something about his, his, his regenerative love. He's teaching you something about his own character. And as you're going through it, you're going to experience what it's like to suffer. You're going to experience what it's like to go through this season of, of, of uh, dryness. You're going to experience what it's like uh, to love someone who doesn't love you back. And it very well could be that God is preparing you to speak to his people. So don't run from it. Number two, we must understand this image of God's love for us as that of a marriage. And we have to embrace the spousal love that God has for us. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't believe that we can truly love another, fully love another, unless we fully understand God's love for us. Unless we, we fully embrace his spousal love for us. You can, you can have a great marriage. You can, you can be completely in love with your wife, your husband, your spouse is completely in love with you, and everything else is crumbling around you. But life is okay. Because everything is fine at home, and you're facing it together, right? Or on the reverse, you could, everything could be great all around you. Everybody talks about how great you are, how beautiful you are, how successful you are, making a lot of money, whatever it is. But things are falling apart at home. Things aren't the way that they should be at home. And your life is going to be miserable. It's just the way it is. So what happens then is, is this, is when we, when we understand the spousal love that God has for us, First of all, it makes everything all right. We begin to see things differently. Our problems aren't so much problems anymore. Because our spouse loves us. And then what happens is a couple different things. If you, if you are single, and you are an unhappy single, and you know, you know what I mean by an unhappy single. If you're an unhappy single, you're going to remain an unhappy single. Because you haven't embraced the spousal love that's there for you. Beyond what any spouse can bring you. So you'll, be, you'll become cynical. And also, you will never be able to fully love your spouse in the future. If you do not embrace the spousal love. And then for those of us who are married, we cannot love our spouses without fully understanding God's spousal love. This is just an example I'm throwing. We've got to understand that the love that God has for us is that of a marriage. And then the third question that we have to ask ourselves is this. Is, is Jesus our spouse? Or is he just our boss? Or just some figure that we remember as a ch from a child on, on the flannel graph, you know? Some idea, some image. 
in our minds? Or is he really our spouse? Do we really embrace him for who he claims to be? Or are we running away? Are we pushing it away? And if he's not our spouse, it's as simple as like a, a, a marriage. I, believer, take you, Jesus, to be my spouse, to live with, to love, to cherish. For better, for worse, for richer, for poor, forever and ever now. We make that covenant. You know, you know where we are reminded of our marriage covenant with God? Where, where we are reminded of our marriage covenant with our earthly spouses is in the bed. That is where we are. It's this image of two people completely coming together, which, which sealed the marriage from the get-go. It sealed the covenant from the get-go. And so every time a, a, a married couple comes together, it is a reminder of their covenant that they have with one another. It's a reminder of that, that, that day that they united in marriage. What is the reminder that we have of our covenant with God? And I know this, is, this might be a strange new idea to you to relate these two, but they, it, 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 it is what it is. It's communion. Communion is this place where we are reminded of the covenant that we have with God which he poured out his blood for us. His body was broken for us. This moment where he came in and he, and he bought us with everything that he had and he, and he healed us, he rescued us. While we were sinners, you know. And maybe you are, are running, you're, you're, you're feeling jaded, you're feeling lost, confused. You know, there once was a time where you, yeah, you made this covenant, this marriage covenant with God through Jesus Christ, but the reality is, is, as life has gone on, you've been looking at different lovers. You've been looking at different things, and other things have caught your eye, and, and other things have taken priority. And even though you believe that you still love, you don't really love anymore. And then it gets to the point where you turn back and you're looking at this, and you're like, I don't even know if Jesus loves me. I mean, it's the greatest lie that we've ever bought into is the fact that God doesn't love us. It's the greatest lie. And, but it's because we begin looking around and we begin seeing uh, these provisions in our life that's coming from somewhere else. We, be, we, we believe that God is not really the one providing for us, that we're doing it ourselves through our jobs or through this person giving me this or through, through this piece of entertainment or whatever it is. Where we begin to find fulfillment. And, and it's not long before we look back and we're like, I don't even really recognize that person anymore. I don't think they love me. I don't know if I love them. And then it goes so far to where you know, we, are, we are standing naked with nothing, completely ashamed, being sold into slavery. And it's all we have left. Complete slavery. And then, as we're being auctioned off, and all of these voices which are pulling for us, which are trying to grab us, and, you know, come with me, come with me. I'm... I'm where you can find fulfillment, happiness, joy, whatever. Above those voices, we hear a familiar voice. Six shekels, eight shekels, ten shekels, twelve shekels. And we look and we, we think to ourselves, really? I mean, look how far I've gone. I've completely turned my back on you. I've completely walked away from you. I've got nothing to offer you. I'm a terrible person. I'm, I'm a slave. And you are fighting for me? <coughs> and then he pays the price that no one else was willing to pay. And he buys us. And he looks at us and he says, I want you to dwell with me. Be with me. Exist with me. I want to heal you. I want to heal you of the addictions, the pain, the problems in your life. What's brought you down? What drug you down? I want to walk with you through that. And then I will be yours. I want to, I want to ask you guys today.
as we take communion today, together, um, can you be reminded of this covenant that God has made with you? This marriage covenant in which we are his priority and he is to be our priority in which we are completely transparent in front of him. There's no hiding, even when we we think there is. And this covenant in which, when he looks at us and he says, you are beautiful, it makes everything else okay. So you may have been running. You may be standing there being auctioned off as a slave. You have nothing left. And I ask you to, again, come to this intimate table and renew your marriage vows. Or make the marriage vows for the first time as you commit your life to Christ. Let's, let's stand together. You guys pray with God, we do thank you for the love that you have shown us through your substitutional sacrifice gift. That you took our pain, took you took our brokenness on yourself, and you gave us your wholeness. We thank you for this, the reality that you our our loving spouse who has been chasing after us, who has found us, and you have bought us. God, as we renew our marriage vows with you this morning, I do ask that you give us the strength, the healing that we need to keep them, to keep our sides. Jesus' name.